Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan, being joined by Andre. Andre, it's been quite the hiatus uh, of What in the World, and I'm so glad we're we're kicking it back off again. It's been a quite a busy month for, I think, you and I, Ryan, but it's also been quite a busy month for the world. Actually, it might have been two months since we've done this. But uh, I, I think we chose to focus on some of the content versus the What in the World, so that certainly uh, deprived us of some of our time. Uh, because one, we've seen the Russia-Ukraine crisis happening for quite a while now, but there's also been a lot of other chaos going on in the world. So, Ryan, I guess with that, uh, we'll start with Russia and Ukraine. I mean, what's the latest? Well, so from where we kind of talked about this last, and of course, we've had some great episodes uh, with individuals to talk about the Russia-Ukraine crisis, but at least from where, what in the world standpoint, we've we've missed quite a lot. And so, uh, I guess... Long story short, Russia has decided to uh, retreat from Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, and embark on an offensive on, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and for most of you listening, you guys are well aware that you know Russia invaded eastern Ukraine in 2014 and had a, a quite a prolonged conflict there with ceasefires and agreements and resumption of hostilities and, and back and forth uh, in the easternmost region where you have the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. So these kind of separatist-esque states that are, are trying to fight back against the Ukrainian government and claim some sort of their own you know, sovereignty. So putting that all together, Russia has been essentially waging war in eastern Ukraine. And so the, the, much of the, the war effort right now is um, kind of centered around Mariupol, uh, which is this eastern port city uh, in Ukraine. And so it, it's been bombarded right, for, for quite a long time now. And there's uh, essentially a huge fight over this this plant um, in in Mariupol, and so uh, it's it's I mean it's quite tragic and terrible, and we've seen mass atrocities uh, across Ukraine, but uh, now particularly in Mariupol, where uh, Ukrainians and other individuals are finding mass graves, and so uh, with indiscriminate bombings as well, uh, and so it, it looks like that Russia's efforts will be maintained in in eastern Ukraine for at least the time being. Uh, I imagine that they will at some point try to resume some sort of push west towards Kyiv. Um, but we have the, the United States and other NATO countries coming to Ukraine's aid. And Ukraine, of course, has been asking for a, a lot. And finally, the US and other countries are delivering some of that. And so uh, this week uh, on Thursday, the Biden administration announced $800 million, uh, this military aid package that includes heavy artillery ammunition and well this is a second this is a second 800 million dollar yes. military package right there was a previous 800 million dollar military package that was maybe passed for a couple of weeks ago maybe a month ago yes 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 so yeah exactly this isn't just the first package i but this is a a new package that is kind of uh adhering to some of the other demands that ukraine has asked for and so this is uh, something that uh, the ukrainians are are quite happy about and something that the U.S. can, you know, quite easily provide, uh, and it's 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 quite useful as Russia is, you know, continuing their war effort. And so, I mean, you know, Andre, you know, we we've talked about this this conflict and even the, the mobilization right up to it for months and months and months. And so now that we're in the thick of it, uh, I mean, what what I imagine we'll see is one, Ukraine is going to put up a, 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 a an incredible defense, and they've continued to do that from the beginning. Um, and it's only going to be able to be sustained 
so long as other countries are able to provide Ukraine with aid, because Ukraine doesn't have the capacity to sustain this for a long period of time, because um, they just don't have the, you know, the weapons and, and the military technology to do so. And Russia clearly has just been more than happy to send countless conscripts and special operations forces into Ukraine and just cycle them in and out. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, unfortunately, I don't particularly see an end in sight. But uh, Andre, there is something kind of in particular that I saw this morning, you know, we're recording this on Saturday morning, uh, a Russian major general claimed that the Russian speaking population in Transnistria, which is this kind of breakaway territory uh, in Moldova, it's on the border of Moldova and Ukraine, he said that these this Russian speaking population is being oppressed. I mean, this is a very similar rhetoric. Oh, it's a, it, right, it's the same rhetoric that we saw in Crimea, we saw in, in Eastern Ukraine. And there have been analysts that have said that, you know, the some former Soviet uh, territories are potentially also um, kind of on the chopping block here. Now, I, it would be a much different kind of pretextual construction to go into Transnistria, just because it's, it's, a, it's a little different of a relationship. Um, but also, you know, Moldova is not I mean, it's a very poor country. It doesn't have a very strong or large military. And so that, and there's also been, you know, Russian special operations forces in Transnistria. And so that would be uh, quite a different operation. But nonetheless, it's still uh, terrible to see that Russia it could be attempting to do something outside of Ukraine, even though what they're doing in Ukraine is still unbelievably crazy and awful. Yeah. Well, Ryan, you and I actually met and uh, we built a rapport and a friendship because we were working on this little research paper for a foreign policy club back in the day. Jeez, it's been like five years or something uh, that looked at sort of Russian aggression and assertion over, I think, Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova. And uh, for our audience, I would recommend that you go out and learn a little bit more about, you know, what Russian assertion has looked like with Moldova, some of the political uh, games they've played, some of the military games they've played uh, with Moldova, because it's a very interesting uh, case, especially as you're seeing Moldova uh, have more opposition in some of this very aggressive rhetoric that the Russians are pulling. And I think the Russians have been imposing a lot of aggressive rhetoric in terms of uh, you know what they're trying to do the size of their bombs and all of this stuff but uh aggressive rhetoric aside i think the russian military has lost more troops than the united states did in the wars in the middle east over the past 20 years uh sure the russians have uh you know powerful aerial bombardment uh, which is really what's been, I mean, killing so many civilians. But on the ground, I mean, we've heard for years about this big, strong Russian military, and trust me, they are strong. But it seems like there are questions about the efficacy of the Russian military on the ground. I mean, of course, it's also a very difficult war to fight. I mean, when we went into the Middle East, uh, I mean, Obviously, you know, now people look back on it as a mistake, but the population was not did not totally hate us. There was still discontent with Saddam Hussein, for example. But the Russian military is going into a country where probably 100% of the people hate their guts. So there is going to be a big, big incentive to fight and to preserve the government. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on this, Ryan, the efficacy of the Russian military? Because it seems like in some ways, they sort of suck on the ground. I mean, the abandonment of these tanks, 
uh, just these mounting casualties and so on. Yeah, I mean, so efficacy requires a lot of different factors. And a, a crucial factor is the will to fight, right? If you don't have a Russian military whose troops are willing to engage in a prolonged offensive, you're not going to win. And not, not necessarily that you're going to lose, uh, but the Russian military can't be successful if their troops, one, don't know what the final goal is, and two, if they don't want to fight, then you're not going to win. And so on the one hand, Russia has significant air superiority and that they have the ability to you know, continually drop bombs on Ukraine. But if you're looking for you know, the actual, if, if Russia's goal is to take the entirety of the country, uh, that can only happen through a ground push. And the ground push requires ground troops who are willing to engage in a prolonged conflict. And we're not seeing that at the moment. And so, you know, taking them back from Kyiv and going back in eastern Ukraine, which they've been fighting in eastern Ukraine for eight years, that's, at least in my mind, something that could be far more successful than the push into areas in western, more westernmost or central Ukraine that are far more anti-Russian, at least eastern Ukraine. There are areas of eastern Ukraine that are more pro-Russian than not. That's not saying that they are pro-Russian regions, because a lot of the region um, is pro-Ukrainian and they're, you know, they they want to maintain the Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, but there is there's far more uh, separatist kind of leanings there, and that's why we have these kind of these proto-states, these uh, separatist regions within uh, the the Donetsk and Luhansk um, provinces, these oblasts. And so I I do think there will be some level of success in eastern Ukraine for Russia. Like they they will be taking cities. They will be seeing momentum pushed forward. Um, but at the end of the day, like that, that may be for them sufficient, right? They may not, they, the actual ultimate goal in Ukraine either may have changed or may not be what we are anticipating it to be. We don't know what Ukraine, um, you know, will end up like in, in this conflict. We also don't know what Russia's real end goal is. And so whatever it is, May or may not be what their their actual objective was. That putting that aside, uh, I do think they will try to take Kiev again, and that still will prove very difficult. Do you think they'll try to go for Kiev again? I do. I think that if, if they see success in the east, that will increase the kind of the Russian will to continue fighting. Right? If if you see you know huge numbers of losses and you're not making any gains, then the kind of the both the internal within Russia's kind of command structure is a bit you know. They're like, well, what are we doing this for? And also the troops are like, well, we're not winning. What are we doing this for? And if you see some sort of victory, like the Russian population, you know, and there's been a lot of dispute over this, a lot of them support this war. From what I've read, from what I've seen, the Russians that I know and that I've talked to saying that the people that they're, they're surround themselves with, a lot of people support this war, not necessarily because they support the merits of it, but because the way it's being projected in Russian media and Russian media is very tightly controlled. They think this is a just war at the moment. And so if the population supports it, you know, that makes it even easier for this to be sustained. And so I, I do think at some point Kiev will come back. Yeah, and there's a lot of brainwashing that's going on. Yeah. And there's a lot of brainwashing that's going on, right? I don't know if you CBS News releases an audio clip of this soldier, this Russian soldier having a conversation with his mother. And he was like, I don't know why we're here. And she's like, you know, you had to have the willpower to fight. You're going to defeat the, the fascists. And then he was like, we're killing kids. We're killing civilian children. And she was like, no, you're not. And he's like, well, yes, we are. <laughs> I mean, he knows better than anyone. I mean, they're actively uh, killing civilians. Uh, 
but yeah, Ryan, you know, I, I also saw an interesting article today uh, on the diplomatic repercussions of uh the Russian invasion. Uh, right. First of all, I, I would say that the Russian economy has somewhat stabilized since those early days, right? Like the ruble has somewhat stabilized since dropping like a rock after yep. those sanctions. Absolutely. Correct? Yeah. I mean, the Russian economy is hammered, but it's 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 living. It's, no, it's not completely destroyed yet. It's, it's surviving. But Ryan, uh, you were talking to me about this earlier, and I wanted to sort of uh, inject my own opinion. Uh, there is an article on CNN by Ria Mogul and Simone McCarthy uh, called Why India Can Buy Russian Oil and Still Be Friends with the U.S. Now, there's a great scholar at Brookings called Dr. Tanvi Madan, uh, who I consider one of my like academic mentors, uh, who has done a lot of great work on India's alignment versus autonomy, especially in terms of how it's played itself against the U.S. and China. and then to an extent, Russia. But uh, I do want to bring her on, but just so I can talk about you know, my view on this, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently diplomatically about how India has been friendly with the US, but is still buying a lot, a lot of Russian oil and has still been on generally friendly terms with Russia. Uh, the reason is, Ryan, because India cares very much about its autonomy. Also, uh, during the Cold War, uh, India and the U.S. were not on the closest of terms. Uh, there was a situation in 1973 when India and Pakistan were going at it, when Richard Nixon sent a carrier strike group to the Bay of Bengal uh, to prevent Indira Gandhi from invading Pakistan. And that sort of left a sort of a sour taste in India's mouth for a long time. Uh, the U.S. has also san- sanctioned India uh, over the development of nuclear weapons, but also, the Soviet Union at the time sought to cultivate a relationship with India that was significantly stronger uh, than it was with the United States. Uh, I mean, Indian public opinion towards the Soviet Union was always generally high uh, throughout the Cold War, uh, more so than the United than it was towards the United States. Right now, the White House needs India on its side, or is trying to get India on its side, trying to get India towards a more aligned status with the United States because of the China threat, right? Like, as we've talked about before, India and China have had some tenuous relationships. It's sort of getting better a bit right now, but the quad, right? We, we emphasize the quad. The U.S. wants India to be more aligned with it against China so it can advance its strategy in the Indo-Pacific. However, India also gets energy. It gets weapons. It has gotten weapons from Russia for a long time. And uh, the CNN article really outlines sort of India's diplomatic success in being able to be, quote, courted by basically all sides, right? It has some of what Russia wants, diplomatic support, or at least India's being neutral on the world stage towards the conflict, sort of similar to the position that China is taking uh, right now. And uh, the U.S. needs it for China, so it can't really press India on the Russia stuff too much. Uh, so, Ryan, I thought that was a very interesting, uh, just an interesting comment I wanted to make on India, because we are, we're sort of seeing it in the news a bit. But speaking of some, you know, politician, well, do you want to give me a comment first on the India thing before I move on? Yeah, just really quickly, there's always a, some sort of prioritization in foreign policy. And this is the clearest example we've seen in a long time that Russia uh, is not as big of a priority as the China threat right now for the United States. Yes. And that is seen by its relationship with India. So just 
keep that in back your head in the back of your heads as we see this progress, um, because India is far more significant in the fight to combat China's aggression than clearly is Russia's uh, at the moment. So go ahead, Andre. Yeah. So yeah. Well, let's move a bit west to France because Macron, Emmanuel Macron, is. Uh, probably on the cusp of actually securing a second term. But there have been some concerns because the polls look tighter than they were in 2017 when he secured his first term. Basically, right now we're seeing a rematch between Marine Le Pen uh, and Emmanuel Macron. Marine Le Pen is a very far-right leader, uh, and uh, she has expressed some support for Vladimir Putin before. Uh, a Marine Le Pen victory, probably in France, would be a very big deal for the state, for the state of Europe. Not like the not a geopolitical state, but like the literal, like the status of the European Union is what I'm trying to say, and uh, unity in the Russian policy. Uh, uh, France has two rounds, so Marine Le Pen was able to break through to the break out of the first round and get that second place position. Uh, but Ryan, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's it's a bit of a scare because you never know what these situations. People said Trump couldn't win, and then Trump won. People said Brexit wouldn't happen, and then Brexit happened. Uh, people are saying, oh, Le Pen can't win, and it's very likely she won't win. And my view is she probably won't win. But you, you always had to be aware that this could happen. Like a 95% chance of victory leaves a 5% chance of defeat. I mean, and we saw this back in 2017, the margin uh, was 30 points. It's 10 points right now. That is a huge difference. Macron is, from what I saw latest, is he has a 10-point lead in the polls, and as many as 11% is undecided in France. That's a potential huge problem for, for Macron. Nonetheless, everyone and most analysts are saying that Macron more or less has this tied up, and we'll see uh, you know, later tomorrow whether or not he actually does. But a, a Marine Le Pen victory in France would completely rock the the EU system and the kind of NATO system, just because one, she has some very interesting ties and some very scary ties to Russia and Russian financing. And she, her views are also incredibly uh, far right, which is not in any sort of alignment with NATO or with the EU. And so that would you know pose a huge problem. Uh, France is seen as a, a very significant leader right now within the EU and within the transatlantic alliance. And if France backs off, uh, that poses a lot of gaps uh, into, into Europe and Europe's kind of cohesion. And so, uh, again, I, I don't anticipate her victory. That being said, I'm not an expert on French politics. Um, and Macron's seen a lot of ups and downs uh, since 2017. I mean, his approval rating has not been great until very recently. And so that, I mean, that I mean, is any French president's approval rating great? <laughs> no. I feel like French presidents have low approval ratings by by, by far. But I mean, uh, I think when he won the first election, Ryan, uh, the first round he scored twenty four percent. Le Pen got twenty one point three. But then second round was sixty six point one against thirty three point nine. So I mean. There was enthusiasm for him back then, I'd say, or at least enthusiasm as like the only choice against like the far right leader. It'll be interesting to see what the actual margin is. Oh yeah, like. I mean it's it's going to be very kind of clear where the the French people stand, and I think that you know of, of course you know it's very unfortunate that the war in Ukraine has happened, but because of Macron's leadership uh, in this crisis and working with uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine, 
I think he's gained a lot of supporters. Outside of like the domestic issues within within France, the foreign policy and international affairs, quote unquote, wins from Macron have, I think, been significant. Especially, I mean, they were having a face-to-face debate, uh, Macron and Le Pen, like literally face-to-face. And uh, they were asked about uh, Putin. And then Macron uses like great line saying, Le Pen basically said, like, you know, why do you meet with Putin? And Macron said, well, I met with a head of state, not my banker. Uh, obviously implying that Le Pen gets some, you know, backing from like the Russian backed, uh, you know, political entities, of course. So pretty great. (laughs) Yeah, very interesting. Uh, Also, before we move on to the next topic, I did want to touch on the fact that there was a little Ebola outbreak in the DRC in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There was a single case confirmed, the guy checked in, he died shortly thereafter. Uh, and it's been around, I think, two weeks uh, of Ebola sort of proliferating there. But again, uh, I don't know how to put this in a, in a more diplomatic way, but the DRC is not necessarily an international hub of traffic, travel, and so on. So you're likely to see the, the outbreak contained there. And I think Africa has done, I think, the Lord's work in uh, in really controlling many of these public health outbreaks, but there's still a lot of problems, right? Like we had to figure out how to ensure that we don't have significant outbreaks again of other viral diseases. Yeah. I mean, so uh, unfortunately, Africa has, you know, seen a lot of public health crises over the years. Uh, But again, as you said, Andre, their response is quite extraordinary. One of the fundamental problems is that they don't have a lot of kind of manufacturing of, of, you know, vaccines and other products within in the continent. And so that poses a huge problem because you have to you know source it from somewhere else. And so re- responding to these crises is always more difficult when you don't have easy access to the supply chain of responding to a health crisis like that. Of course, you know, the world's gone through uh, Ebola before, so they know how to respond to it. But I mean, this is clear evidence that, you know, public health is always going to be a huge concern. Of course, we're we're in, still in COVID and we're kind of coming off it and there's some kind of return to quote unquote normalcy. Uh, but I mean, public health, as we always say, Andre, is a huge national sh- security risk. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ryan, I want to shift into uh, just maybe a few minutes on Sri Lanka. Uh, we had an episode with Dr. Sanjana Hatatoa this past Monday, sort of talking about the mass protests that have been going on in Sri Lanka. So if you want more information about what that's all about, uh, go listen to that. We also had a six episode miniseries sort of assessing uh, China, US. Uh, against Sri Lanka, like how does Sri Lanka interact with these two superpowers? But uh, sort of the updates, so mass protests against the ruling family, the Rajapaksa is the president and prime minister. Uh, Sri Lanka is actively going and meeting with the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, to fix its uh, debt crisis. And it's basically its economic, uh, like, I mean, worst economic crisis like ever. And they're also courting India and China for uh, economic assistance. I do want to point uh, you know, our attention towards that because I think Sri Lanka is a really good case study of you know, what a smaller country in trouble will do uh, when they have you know, a lot of trouble, right? So like, uh, watch what Sri Lanka's interactions are like with China. Watch what their interactions are like with India. Uh, watch also what China's reactions to the Sri Lanka crisis is like. China's been a bit quiet on their usual support of the Rajapaksa brothers. They've been very quiet, actually. They haven't really expressed too much of an opinion. Of course, China's all about 
uh, you know, countries having their own autonomy and so on. But it's just very interesting to see how the global powers react to what's happening in Sri Lanka, because, you know, while we might be paying attention to Ukraine and Russia, uh, it's a very active Indo-Pacific that we're always seeing. So definitely take heed and pay attention to what's happening in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka's circumstances are very unique, but pay attention to how uh, our foreign policy also treats it. Uh, Ryan, is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, just super quickly uh, before we wrap up today, there's been a kind of renewed clashes in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, over the past week. Of course, you know, we have the the three kind of holy times of the year falling upon the same week, really, with Ramadan, Eastern, Easter, and Passover. For the first time in 33 years, Andre kind of coming together at the same time. And so there's been clashes uh, at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is in Judaism, of course, seen as highly significant where the historic uh, temples were. And so these these clashes have you know led to rocket fire uh, coming in from from Gaza and then strikes by the Israeli military uh, back into Gaza. There's been kind of a flare up in diplomatic tensions between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government. And Andre, you and I covered this in depth, at least you know the, the previously to this kind of resumption in tensions, the last one, which was far more significant. But of course, we'll see what happens this time around. So if you guys want a little more insight. Uh, into kind of the the longevity uh, of this conflict, check out our mini series. It was from last summer, I believe we did it late May through kind of July, and that kind of covers kind of how we got to where we are in the state of relations. But uh, you know, make sure to kind of stay attuned to what's happening uh, in that part of the world as well. As Andre said, kind of at the forefront, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, and you know, we will be back with what in the world each week to cover these issues um, again after kind of our 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 break. I do want to just point out one more thing about Israel. Uh, I think the government of Bennett, the current prime minister, he has 60 of 120 Knesset seats. So he has exactly 50%. So his government could really fall at any time. And Netanyahu is always actively working in the background, trying to get back to power because he likes power. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, Israel could, <laughs> yeah. Israel could ab- absolutely uh, fall apart. I mean, the government... This coalition is just hanging on by a thread. And anytime, I mean, you have an, a few Arab seats from, from the Arab party um, in this coalition. And so they're not going to stay a part of it if you see these huge clashes and maybe some sort of kind of back and forth or increase in tensions. Like they're going to, and they, they've already kind of said they're, they're close to completely falling out of it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, if you can't hold on to it, you go back to elections again. And Israel's political, like domestic politics have been quite crazy. And so, I mean, we'll see what happens. But as, as Andre mentioned, you know, pay attention. It's, it's important. And so we'll, we'll leave you all there uh, for this week's edition of What in the World. We're very glad to be back. Uh, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Lots of exciting stuff uh, coming in this spring and in this summer. So uh, make sure you all kind of stay up to date with everything going on. Absolutely. On Monday, we have a great episode releasing with Josie Joseph, a great, deep investigative uh, journalist from India uh, that basically looks at corruption and the Indian deep state and the security establishment in India. So uh, that was a very insightful episode, but stay tuned for that we also had great sessions with former director of national intelligence jim clapper two weeks ago and then with dr sanjana hadutoa uh, this past monday on the sri lanka crisis so stay tuned and uh, see you soon see you next time